today's workplace podcast disclaimer, JT Wilson. This podcast is intended to provide general information about various recent developments in employment law and human resources best practices. Nothing in this presentation or in the comments of Ms. Johnson, Ms. Shannon, or any guest should be considered as the rendering of legal or other professional advice, and it is not directed at any specific cases or circumstances. Listeners are responsible for obtaining the necessary advice about their specific situations from their own counsel. These materials are intended for educational and informational purposes only. The presentation and these materials represent the opinions of the participants and not those of their law firms or companies. No part of these materials may be printed, photocopied, or otherwise reproduced, recorded, or stored, or transmitted in any form and by any means, electronic, mechanical, or otherwise, without the prior written permission of today's Workplace Podcast. Welcome to today's Workplace, a podcast created to keep employers current on the latest employment law trends while providing proactive solutions to the everyday issues arising in today's rapidly changing workplace. Is your business prepared for today's workplace? Let's find out with your hosts, Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed Shannon. Okay, welcome to today's workplace. And during this series of interviews, we are exploring how the global pandemic has changed today's workplace. We've had a series of discussions with futurist Jay Jamrog, and we explored what leadership looks like in a little over two years after the pandemic disrupted the workplace. We also explored how employers can create culture within organizations, even while employees work remotely or using a hybrid approach to working in an office. Since our discussion with Jay, The U.S. Supreme Court has issued the very controversial opinion overturning Roe v. Wade, and we thought we'd start our conversation around the employer's reaction to Roe v. Wade today. So today we're excited to welcome to our show Andrew Botwin, or Andy, who founded Strategy People Culture LLC in 2012 with a passion for working with the interconnectivity between people and business and the fundamental beliefs in the symbiotic relationship between the advancement of success of both people and business. Andy is a seasoned executive and leadership coach. He's an independent workplace investigator and trainer with more than 25 years of experience working with companies across various levels. He was chief human resources officer for a 1500 plus person professional services firm and a principal and chief human resources officer for a top national professional services firm where he drove culture, changing the organization, culminating in recognition on Fortune Magazine's prestigious 100 Great Places to Work in America. Andy has worked with the Society for Human Resources Management as a member of a special task force to develop workplace standards and metrics on employee value And earlier in his career, Andy worked for a large national staffing organization managing human resources and risk management issues and as an auditor with Arthur Anderson. Andy, welcome to today's workplace. We have lots to cover today. You know, I heard you speak to a group recently about the creation of culture with organizations, and I was impressed 
by some of the insights you provided. And I thought you would be a great follow-up guest to Jay Jamrog to help us take a deeper dive into how employers can create the culture they desire in their rapidly changing workplaces. However, when I looked at your website, Culture Creator is not one of the services that you specifically offer, although culture is actually in the name of your organization, Strategy People and Culture. So I think it would be helpful to first explain how you define culture, how you became interested in the culture of organizations, and how you assist employers in creating culture. Okay, that's three questions. So I'm going to three questions. If you can help me try to keep track of them, and I'll do my best to answer all of them. So I'll start with my interest first, and how that became a passion and a focus of mine. Because you're right, I don't offer that as a standalone service, but it is part of the name, the unique name of my company or one of my two companies. And so I was a, as Belinda read in my bio, which sounded crazy impressive. It's strange sort of sitting here hearing people read that. Um, (laughs) I was a partner in a national uh, CPA firm and that organization was growing very, very rapidly and also had a lot of turnover. Uh, Imagine a company growing 40 plus percent a year, mostly organically. And then you're having turnover of 40 plus percent a year. The strain on people was really tremendous. And, you know, my job overseeing human resources for the company in part became kind of like this ramshot recruiting function to try to keep up with the growth. And at one point I stepped back and said, there's gotta be something more that we can do. And that organization to its credit had really sort of a good, I call it like camaraderie kind of vibe, but was missing a lot around what I would call culture and focus around culture. And so I started really studying, reading, following a lot of the companies that are on these lists, such as the Fortune 100 best places to work list. And in researching, networking with some of those companies, I learned some some basic fundamental things that I said, you know what, I'm buying into this. Let's see what we can do. And then I started down a, what became a long journey of convincing an organization that was financially successful, that doing things differently could actually be even better for that company. And so, you know, my passion sort of swooned as I, I got more and more into it. There were some challenges along the way, for sure. It was not an easy road, but eventually started seeing the results. Uh, The turnover started going down. Our top line kept growing, but our bottom line was growing incrementally as well, in part because of those efforts. And, you know, ultimately it culminated in in getting that national recognition. Great result. Um, Tell us how you did it. (laughs) <laughs> um, how much time do we have? Uh, you know, that, that was Give us a shorthand version. Yeah. So, you know, I think there's, and this maybe leads into a little bit of one of your other questions around definition and how I define definition. And even you, it wasn't a question you asked, but why I don't sell it as a service. I think organizations have tendencies to when they're looking at culture and saying, what is the fix? How do you do it? You know, what's our silver bullet? And what I've observed is a lot of companies, a lot of the big consulting companies who do great work, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way, they come up with a playbook and say, you know, here's how we do it. So when Barbara asks, you know, how are you going to do it if we hire you and pay you all of this money? How are you going to accomplish that? And what I believe is actually that's a mistake 
to making a sustainable cultural impact on an organization. It's really about understanding who you are because every organization has a culture already, whether it was deliberate, whether it was something that there was real effort in to create. It's a matter of having an honest inflection point and starting with who you are today and understanding who you want to be tomorrow and why, and then coming up with an approach to actually shift where you are today, who you are today as a culture, how you operate, how you live, how you think, and what that's going to look like tomorrow. Great. So Andy, what would you say are the pillars of a strong culture in any organization? And, and how would that look different when you're talking about, you know, a company that's like in its early stages or a company that's kind of like mid, mid uh, stream or a company that's very mature? How does it, um, how does it look different? Well, I'd say sort of that more startup early stage company, it's maybe a little easier because you have opportunity to create, you know, culture, put up some of those pillars as you described it early on and execute and stick to that along the way. A more mature, larger organization, because as I said, we all already have a culture change can be a little more difficult. You know, if you have 10,000 employees that are part of your organization that are used to one type of culture and you want to shift 10,000 people, that doesn't happen overnight. That takes time and um, reinforced effort. You know, one of the things that I've learned, I mentioned before that I studied a lot of these companies that have received national publicity and international publicity on some of these efforts. And when I think back to my own experience, one of the first things that we said as an accounting firm, a professional services firm was, well, we're different. And we had all these reasons because why, you know, and how we're different and how it's going to look different and why certain things that you read about don't work for our type of organization. And, you know, what I've really become convinced of is that's a bunch of hogwash. Um, And from organization to organization, large, small, regardless of the services that you offer, professional services, law firm, accounting firm, a widget manufacturing company, a distribution type of business, you know, a sales organization, people are people, you know, why we're all different individually. And, you know, we could learn how the three of us are are different in many different ways. There's some basic fundamentals that really apply across all organizations. In terms of pillars, that goes back to my playbook, you know, and my disliking to it. This makes me, I think, probably a minority thinker in, in this world in that I don't think there's specific pillars. I think it's about being intentional to that question about who it is that you want to be. So a lot of articles that, that you'll read and, you know, you can Google workplace culture and, you know, you're going to yeah. get an awful lot to, to yeah. slip through. But a lot of the articles say, you know, these are the five things you need to do to have a, a good culture. Mm-hmm. And I think that is subjective to a lot of people. You know, you, Belinda, think is a good culture might be different than what you, Barbara, thinks, mm-hmm. you know, and what I think might be good. And I think it's about being, the word I use often is intentional about yeah. what you want to be and why. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I I appreciate you sharing that and thinking that because sometimes when I do see those lists of do these five things, it almost seems too formulaic 
and it seems like there you're going to there's going to be some gaps when applied against the real realities of your particular organization but there are a couple of things that have happened you know lately maybe in the last 10 15 years or so and certainly in the last 2 years that I also want to get your take on and that's how you know how does it change when you've got a geographically distributed organization across different countries, you know, because then you have all those subcultures. And then how does culture building occur also, or what differences are in place now that most companies have adopted a hybrid working model? Yeah, complicated question. So I'm going to try to, to okay. simplify that. And if you want to push me further or in okay. a direction, please feel, feel free. What's interesting is, you know, before the last two, certainly pre-pandemic, we were already having a little bit of a hybrid work environment. It just wasn't as prevalent as what we're experiencing. Mm-hmm. And what's incredibly interesting is, and I think it's a good learning lesson that hopefully, um, more leaders than not are paying attention to. I fear that not enough are because the focus is on the issue, uh, working from home, having a hybrid workforce, as opposed to as a leader, how you can think differently about how what's going to work well for your business and the culture that you're trying to create. So for example, there's lots of organizations and coming from the professional services world, Barbara, I don't know about your organization, but lots of law firms and accounting firms said, we can't work from home. You have to be in the office. It won't work for us. Yet for a lot of those firms, it worked because they were forced into that. And it's not a matter of whether working from home, working from the office is right. You know, I have my own opinions and that's a complicated discussion and it's not a one size fits all because depending on the individual, depending on their personal circumstances, where they are in life and you know what that commute would look like, it means a lot of different things to different people. To me, the bigger learning lesson though, and Belinda, I'm not sure if this completely answers your question, so forgive me if it doesn't, but to me, the biggest learning from that and what's been happening the last few years is to think a little bit differently and don't just look at what's in front of us and what has to be the mm-hmm. way that we work because there's lots of possibilities. It's just a matter of our receptivity and you know the way we did it yesterday doesn't necessarily need to be the way we do it tomorrow. It really is interesting to see how this concept of work as an essential function has changed. Two, three years ago, for pretty any much, any litigation that I was involved in where attendance was an issue or someone wanted to work from home or whatever and the employer didn't want them to, they could always say attendance is an essential function of the job. You must be here. And the last couple of years have certainly called into question how essential is it for you to be present? And are those employers correct? And professional services is a great example. A lot of law firms have said, I can't create culture unless you're here. I want people you know, in the seats. I want people here where I can see you and you can bond. And we know that that's also not necessarily true. You know, you've made a good point of saying that the concept of culture is not new. Um, and that successful and effective leaders should know the culture of their organizations, right? So what are some of the ways employers can use to gauge their employees' perceptions of culture? Is that something that you've helped employers do? What are your thoughts on that? 
So yes, I definitely helped employers do that. So that part's easy. The identification um, is, is actually also fairly straightforward. You know, what's interesting is for the last roughly decade or so being, um, you know, a consultant essentially and coming in from the outside, it's amazing how I could tell leaders in an organization what I've observed and sort of define what I'm seeing as their culture. And most of the things that I'm sharing with them are not new, but yet somehow they're heard or they're heard differently because somebody from the outside is saying what, if they were honest with themselves internally, they knew from the get-go. And I think there's value in that. I'm not criticizing it. I think there, there's a human nature component to that sometimes. And, you know, we don't always see what's in front of us, but it's, it's about figuring out how to ask the question and being ready to act on that question. You know, a lot of surveys, you know, are done throughout organizations. Asking those surveys is great, but if you get um, information, are you prepared to act on it? And so if it's first trying to figure out and understand your culture and who you are, ask, ask people. Bring in an outsider like me to do that through things like focus groups and, you know, various interviews. It can be very helpful, can be really insightful, and it can also help create sort of the stepping stone that an organization and the leadership group might need to, to push that envelope. I'm also a big believer in executive coaching. I do a lot of that in my world and working one-on-one with people at the top of the organization is a private way to really sort of challenge somebody's thinking. And that's not consulting. That's not me telling a CEO what they should do, how they should act, what they should be thinking. It's more about challenging their thought process to help them you know, deal with their own struggles in a more private way about how to move. For example, working from home, you know, I believe everybody should be in their seats in the office, or I believe everybody should be able to work from home. But whatever that belief is, it's a, it's, you know, while you can't talk in absolutes, there is no such thing. Pretty much take it to the bank that you've got employees that think differently, regardless of where you're coming from. You know, you mentioned executive coaching, How do you help leaders through executive coaching improve their leadership skills? Yeah, you know, the biggest key I found to create a successful coaching relationship is the the leader's readiness for it. You know, so if you have somebody that is not looking for somebody to change them, not looking for somebody to tell them what to do or how to behave, but really looking for somebody to give them objectivity, um, you know, if they're being a little too stubborn, hit them between the eyes, you know, figuratively, not literally, but really, really not only challenge their thinking and get the person in the leadership role to expand the possibilities in various situations and learn to do that more naturally on a day in and day out basis, but to support them to take action steps beyond their comfort zones. People think that because somebody's the CEO or they're a a senior manager in an organization, they're supposed to have all the answers. They're supposed to, you know, be bulletproof in terms of their own anxieties, their own second thoughts, their own nervousness. And that's, that's just not reality. And so coaching can be really, really effective for helping people work through that. Do you have any case studies that you can share with us anonymously, of course, in terms of transformations that leaders have made who are willing to embrace the process that have enhanced, improved their leadership? Yeah. So, you know, I'm going to have to 
think and react kind of quickly. So I'll give you a couple examples off the top of my head to give you an idea of, I think, the diversity of people that this can help. So ahead of our meeting today, I had a, a meeting with the CEO of a national nonprofit organization. And I've been working with this particular leader for about two years now. And seeing her growth has been been incredible, but she does the work. She embraces conversation. She embraces a challenge. She shows up every day when we're meeting, you know, sort of ready to work. And, you know, her organization is in the best position they've ever been. You know, it's a nonprofit and, you know, every company is a business to some degree, you know, but things have never looked as as good as they have. They've had some national celebrities for a relatively small national nonprofit join in and help them along the way. Um, I have another client that I've also been working with for a couple of years. So I was working with the CEO for uh, probably four or five years now. And about two years ago, he also brought me in to work with his COO. Um, and they just... Um, had a major liquidity event and sold to a private equity company based in LA, Belinda. So I think somewhere in your backyard, you know, they're still operating the business and, and growing, but again, you know, tremendous success story. And that was about, you know, gaining capital and you know, a lot of what we talked about there was challenging different approaches on how to get there, not coming up with the solutions, not giving the answers, but coming up with different possibilities to get the right parties to the table and maximize that value. Another organization, I'm just going to start rambling, um, current <laughs> clients that I have. And so you can yeah. stop me w w when you're ready is... Um, about a $200 million company. And Belinda, it's interesting to your point, you kind of differentiated sort of the new startup. Yeah. Companies. This is kind of a, almost a startup $200 million company. So, yeah. you know, they grew incredibly fast. And the CEO said, you know, I, I thought I had all the answers, but I just needed somebody objective. And yeah. um, a lot of what we talk about is around people, how to be more effective as a CEO, as opposed to somebody just rolling up their sleeves and gutting it out, which a lot of entrepreneurs and leaders do. And it's how do they elevate themselves to maximize what they're getting out of the people that they're counting on. The reason I asked that question, Andy, is because um, I'm a veteran of very large mature organizations. And then my, this last assignment, the company I'm currently with is a just beyond its startup phase. And so, and in the middle of rapid scaling and rapid growth. And so, you know, I, I look at the, the things such as culture and leadership through that lens of, well, where's the company and even more so the leaders. And so I wanted to dig into this, this concept of leadership. You mentioned it earlier as being a critical, the, the most critical factor of building culture. And I wanted to know what you would describe as the attributes of an effective leader and and whether or not those attributes, has that changed now that we're post-pandemic and some of the changes that that brought into the workplace? And, and are there some new skills that a leader would need for today's workplace? I don't think there's been a dramatic change in the skill sets around what's going to make a successful leader, you know, between today and, you know, call it two years ago. You know, to me, it's about that leader's ability to sort of be honest with themselves and understand that, that they're not perfect. I tell people all the time, 
you know, why people might expect you to get it right 100% of the time. None of us do. I have yet to meet a human being that does, you know, realizing that is important. But if you get it right 65% of the time, you might be doing pretty good. And imagine if through working with an individual, if you can move that from 65 to 70% of the time, yeah. just because you've got somebody challenging the way that you think, that can be incredibly impactful to business, small, large, um, rapid growth, or you know, even if they're retracting a little bit in terms of their size. Mm-hmm. So you know, to me, it's about you know, sort of a willingness to look yourself in the mirror, be honest, challenge yourself, and, you know, combined with having the courage and conviction to stand up and communicate. You know, communication seems to be half the issues, uh, you know, not only in business, but in life in general. And so the more focus that you can give to that, the better as well. That's maybe not a complete answer, but uh, you have to tell me if you want a little more there. That's good. Yeah, no, that worked. What about any new skills that might be needed uh, for today's workplace? One of the differences that I'm constantly faced with, and many are, is the fact that, you know, today's workforce are more activist oriented. They are, you know, expecting leaders to, you know, really speak out on values and speak out on things affecting our communities and our environment. So what do leaders do with this? You know, because in the past, you really didn't have to or weren't called upon to bond or take a stance. Uh, What do you think about that? Yeah, I think a lot about that. And I think the worst thing that organizations can do, which most tend to do, is throw lipstick on a pig. You know, they give it lip service, they um, they do something, but it's not really meaningful. It's more to check the box. And, and sometimes I actually think that's worse because some people will see through that and that can create some negative will. So, you know, what I would say from a skill set standpoint, it's more about not necessarily what your opinion is. It's about understanding that as a human, you have an opinion and as other humans that are working for you, they have opinions. Some are going to agree and some are going to disagree. I actually just wrote and published yesterday a blog. So if anybody's interested, feel free to go to my website on this issue in light of Barbara, you opened up around Roe v. Wade and leading in controversial times. It's not about what my view is, whether you know abortion you know should be legal or should not be legal and my judgment of people one way or the other. It's more about me understanding that I may have views and other people may have views but understand big impactful issues like that and many others, you know, and we're, you know, not too far off from the wake of the, you know, hashtag me too movement. And you know, many of the national news stories around racism in this country, all of these things evoke emotion and passion for people and, you know, expecting people to sort of have that at the breakfast table, but not have that at work is kind of unrealistic. But figuring out how to channel that in a way that say, hey, we're all at work for, you know, one common reason. We've got to focus on that, but understand we're not going to judge people and give them the space they need as well. You know, there's a huge push, as Belinda mentioned, toward social justice in organizations and employees expecting to hold the organization accountable to certain societal type values as well. So how do you develop as an organization a process 
programs around social justice without having an opinion as an organization? You know, so how do you do that? Yeah, and and to be clear, I I, I don't think it's a bad thing that organizations take positions, you know, you know, also known as having an opinion. There's wrong and right, and people can differ about what the definition of wrong or right is. But if we keep sort of a simple extreme example, murder, some people, I guess, could think it's right. I don't. But our society in the U.S. says it's not right. And so taking that position saying we don't endorse, you know, murder, we're against that. I mean, that's, that's a little off the topic of your example, but it's safer for the moment. And then we can dive a little bit deeper into other waters. So, you know, organizations taking the statement and having a position is fine. You know, that goes back to the culture and who they are and who they're going to be. But it's about being intentional, being deliberate about what they're doing, why they're doing it, and how they're doing it. And so, yes, you know, some people have a call out for certain types of social responsibility, social justice, organizations taking a position. That's not everybody. And sometimes it, it can seem that way. And Again, you know, when you take a position, you may risk alienating certain people, something as controversial as Roe v. Wade, where it's clear that there's, you know, two drastically different points of view on an issue and not a clear answer. Whereas when we talk about other issues around racism, um, gender discrimination, those are a little easier to understand and take a position and say, we don't allow for that. That's not okay. Yet it's very complex issues. Um, you know, Barbara, what you do for a living, Belinda from, from inside a, a corporation, what you do for a living and what I do for a living. You can see that. And, you know, when you're talking about social justice, DEI has been a major topic for the, over the last few years. It's been a topic for many years. Yeah. Um, it has received sort of put on the front burners for a lot of organizations. But again, a lot of companies have, you know, sort of done something to say they've done something. They've made a statement to make a statement to say that they have, but do the actions support that? Not necessarily. And do some organizations dive more deep? And does that necessarily mean they've taken good action or bad action? I find it an incredibly dangerous time that we're in right now. Another part of my business, which you didn't really mentioned in my bio, I don't think, is issues around harassment and discrimination, investigating mm -hmm. and training. Mm -hmm. And as a trainer, if you think about it at a very fundamental level, I tell, you know, the message I'm giving is you don't treat people differently based on what a technical term might be protected classifications, you know, gender, race, national nationality, national origin, religion, all of those things. Yet, you get a lot of people that are putting themselves out as DEI experts coming into an organization that maybe don't have the sensitivity to that element saying, okay, let's talk about our differences. And it's an appropriate, both conversations are appropriate to have, I believe. Um, but it's a little dangerous how I think some companies, when they are jumping in, to make that difference. So um, I would never encourage companies to not do do anything that we're talking about. In fact, I would encourage them to take steps in directions on each of the items that we've talked about, at least to this point, but it's about doing it in a thoughtful manner and don't just sort of do it because let's face it, 
every, you know, most people are busy and the core competency of a business's purpose, if it is to make cup holders, you know, in water, their competency is to make cup holders and cups and purify water or whatever the case is. And they're not focused necessarily on some of these social issues. And, you know, so it's about being thoughtful. Yeah. You know, you raise a really interesting point about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace versus discrimination. And I think very often there is confusion around those two concepts because the law requires employers to be colorblind. And then when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, as you talked about, we are talking about talking about differences and the law still hasn't gotten to a point where you can make race conscious decisions in most instances or in many instances. So there is, um, I think, a lot of confusion. And unfortunately, anybody can hold themselves out as a DEI expert and they don't necessarily understand that context and can actually create more harm than good. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's such an important issue. And, you know, in some ways, events that are tragic or bad that have happened in the past that for some reason have reached the pivot point to elevate it and make it more visible is a good thing. You know, it's a it's about how we as a society, as a society adapt. And it's part of our evolution. And, you know, I, I think if you look historically, generically, we've had positive evolution in terms of you know our society and how we're looking at some of these different issues but it doesn't mean that there's not missteps you know as a as a lawyer and officially i'm, I'm retired in, with my state bars so i don't give legal advice but i don't know many people that can go through law school without hearing something like bad laws are made from bad facts or bad facts mm-hmm. make bad laws and yet it's good context so the harvey weinstein you know, story. I'm not, I wasn't there. I don't know, but it certainly seems like that. Like he did a lot of bad things and, you know, but what came of that was a lot of good. People are willing to now come forward and speak more. And it's sort of opened that door or taken down some of the hurdle for, uh, in that example, a woman who was sexually harassed to come forward. However, has there been some damage to that, you know, society? Sure. I mean, you know, have you ever spoken to somebody, a man that says, I don't want to be alone with a woman in a room? Yeah. That's not healthy either. And so no, it's about yeah. finding that balance. And it's, it's certainly sexual harassment isn't just a, a man sexually harassing a woman. I'm just giving an example here. Um, and so it's about moving the needle, you know, sort of upward and onward. And, right. and organizations that figure out how to thread that needle a little better will, will be more successful. I was going to say, I sometimes feel like 2020 summer social justice was the catalyst that kind of elevated the conversation and moved the needle for organizations around their understanding and embracing really of, you know, what diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging means, how it's leveraged for business success, how it impacts, you know, employees, which in turn would impact, you know, their contribution to the mission of the company. So, you know, I think everyone kind of like, hopefully has shifted to that new place and will stay and build from there. That's excellent. Going back to Roe v. Wade for a moment, and we will post a link to your website and to the article on our website. What advice do you have for employers now that Roe v. Wade has been overturned? 
I think there's a few key things I would put out there. One, Roe v. Wade is a national social issue. It's not a, a direct work issue. However, but also from an advisory standpoint or, or what I'd recommend is remember that this is going to affect some people more deeply than others. You know, you, if you have people passionate enough to go to Washington, D.C. and protest, you've got some people with passion that maybe won't go that far, but have that passion that follows them into the workplace because they are human. And so understanding that. I think the mistake that a lot of leaders make on a lot of issues, whether they're big social controversial issues, like what we're talking about with Roe v. Wade or a business philosophy, you know, stay home, work in the office, or even more subtle, smaller relative policy decisions are they have an opinion. Most of us have an opinion and some of us have very thought out opinions about different issues. But understanding and being receptive to that other people may have different opinions and different points of view and work on the communication to close the gap and say, look, you know, here's what our decision is as an organization. Here's why we're happy to talk about it. However, this is the decision. And, you know, we're going to the left. You may think we need to go to the right. We can talk about it, but we also have to go to the left why we're having that conversation because we've got to go in the same direction. And then when you're talking about big social issues, understand that, hey, you know, some people may be so affected that they need a little time away from work just to regroup and gather their thoughts. And that should be okay. Forcing people to to not have that could be counterproductive. And, you know, does an employer want somebody that is you know, off the rails emotional in one direction or another, or would they be better off having that person take a few extra days off, you know, to wait until they can better channel themselves on why they're at work in the first place. Those kinds of issues. I, and, you know, when it comes to leaders having their own opinions, they should have, a, they're entitled to opinions like anyone else, but they need to understand that if they go around and say, I believe this was right, or this was wrong, that has an impact on the effectiveness of your people and how they're going to view not only you, but the organization, their attentiveness to their job. And let's face it, you know, when we're hired to do a job, we're hired to do that job. And the more effective and focused we are on that, the better. If we're focused on my boss, you know, thinks a way that I think is impossible to even recognize or give credence to, then that's going to distract them from being effective on on their job. So what role do you think the organization's uh, tenant or uh, value statements play in, you know, the direction they go when it is time to make a statement or when they're being called upon to make a statement on what you call national social issues? Yeah, I think there's two ways that can go for the many organizations that have a value statement, have a vision, have words that no one can repeat. And, you know, they went through an expensive exercise to try to figure out what it should be, but it's not part of the organization. It means nothing. But if organizations have values, and I would go back to sort of how we started this conversation on culture and Mm -hmm. the importance of being intentional and deliberate, knowing who you are and knowing who you want to be and why, and talking about the behaviors, the expectations of individuals on a regular basis, then can become a really good guidepost when some of these more controversial issues creep into the workplace. You know, because if you have a philosophy of value 
that is about treating people with respect, for example. Mm-hmm. And then if somebody has a different view than you do a re- on a recent uh, U.S. Supreme Court decision, treating people with respect as opposed to judgment, you know, if you have those values and they're embedded in and they're part of your every day, it's at least a way to sort of set the goalposts and say, look, you know, if you want to judge people because you believe one way or the other, that's your prerogative as you know somebody in this country but in the workplace you know we can have different opinions but you need to keep it so we're treating people with respect that's part of our values here thank you sure no really important concept i think if you focus on respect for the individual as a core value of the organization and use that to help guide your actions when these issues come up is to recognize that you said, I hear you. I understand that that's your view, but as an organization, we're going over here. Okay. So this has been fascinating, Andy. You've shared a lot of, um, I think, interesting insights. And if you take a moment to think about three things that you'd like to leave our audience with as they Think about creating culture and the role of leaders in creating that culture, as well as dealing with controversial subjects. What are some of the takeaways you'd like to leave people with? Yeah, so I guess culture one is both top down and bottom up. And to think it's only one, you know, would be a mistake. I'm a firm believer Obviously, I do this for a living. So, you know, selfishly, I I would also say that investing in your leaders is is critical and especially investing in people that can be independent coaches for your top leaders can be extraordinarily helpful. You know, you, you hear things from leaders saying it's lonely at the top. Even if it's, you know, Belinda says some of your earlier organizations that were large organizations, they may have had a wonderful management team in place who were all really trying to do the best thing, but they all have a point of view. You know, the head of sales, you know, has a perspective that might not agree with the perspective of the COO which might not agree with the head of human resources, which might not agree with IT, even though they all want the same things. And having sort of that objective sounding board, not to make corporate decisions, but to help um, think things through can be incredibly sort of pound for pound impactful than other company. Any other takeaways? Hmm. Yeah, I got culture leaders. I I guess I was waiting for that third one. (laughs) Okay, so... Yeah, so culture leaders, and I I guess the other thing I want to leave people with is don't think that anybody needs to have all the answers. You know, oftentimes I think we're all, especially when we're in a position of authority and responsibility, think that, you know, we need to have the answer and be right. You need to make decisions and you need to have conviction behind those decisions. But Be thoughtful about how you come to those decisions. Don't just do it based on what your beliefs are, what your thoughts are, you know, certainly. And I think that's consistent with some of what we've been talking about. Well, thank you again for joining us, Andy. This has been a delightful conversation as we've explored culture and leadership and even controversial Supreme Court rulings. 
Yeah, I appreciate everything that you've shared today. I think some of these issues, they are understated in in the minds of a lot of leaders when things are happening that impact the business and things that impact the community, you know, that there's kind of like understatement of, of how they're actually impacting, you know, the individuals that make up your company and, you know, their ability to carry on in the face of all of these challenges. And so everything that you shared from culture to leadership is, I think, very, very useful and very helpful. So thank you for that conversation today. Yeah, thank you both. I appreciate you having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks. You've been listening to Today's Workplace with Barbara Johnson and Belinda Reed If you like what you heard, click subscribe so you don't miss out on future updates and episodes. For more information about today's episode, check out todaysworkplace.com. That's T-O-D-A-Y-S-W-O-R-K-P-L-A-C-E.com.